Put down your paintbrush, it's time for Hobby Support Group. Today's episode, we're introducing you to me, your host, Tom, and my co-host, Andy. Yo. Then the second part, we'll be talking about what is the hobby as we see it, so setting out our stall as of all the various different aspects of hobbying. A potted history as a gamer. As of, I assume, quite a few people who sort of grew up in the 80s sort of did, I started out gaming with the Choose Your Own Adventure books. So I've moved on to playing a Lord of the Rings game when I was sort of during one summer when I was about 12. We got about halfway through the Shire and then sort of left that and never went back to it. So sort of moving on from there, I sort of moved into sort of 40k before sort of taking the fairly standard break for beer and girls, sort of in my mid-teens. Didn't sort of stay away from the hobby for that long, so sort I of came back in my early 20s at uni when I started playing the Lord of the Rings game, War of the Ring. When that came out, because I was a student and broke, I was playing with a friend and we just had bases with bits of blue tack on to represent minis. And that was sort of really a, an interesting point when it realised you can actually sort of get quite a lot out of a tabletop game without minis and just use tokens. Sorry, what was that, Andy? I said minis are best if you can have them. Yeah, minis are best, but blue tack can work. Can work, that's true. <laughs> I played D&D... Um, and other role-playing games, but never really have time to sort of commit to more than one campaign at a time. And sort of as a sort of tabletop gamer these days, I mostly play historical games, dallying in various different scales, which we'll sort of talk on later. So you, you want to hear my history? Oh my goodness! Uh, it's long. It's a long and winding path through forty years of uh, gaming. So. Um, I mean, the first game I learned to play was chess, and I used to play um, Plastic Soldiers um, when I was like five or six, not realising that many years later I'll be doing a very <laughs> a similar thing. I remember thinking when I was little, man, I wish I could get really good at painting these Plastic Soldiers, but man, no one could be that good at painting them. And now, I, I, if I could go back, I think my, my childhood self would be amazed at how good I am, even though I don't think I'm good enough to, for myself. First gaming, I guess proper game would be when I was... About eight or nine, my brother introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons. Now, some of you might remember the um, the red box, the old red box basic Dungeons and Dragons set that came out. I started playing that and I really enjoyed it. So I initially, I mean, I played fighting fantasy books as well. When I say I played them, um, I used to shove my fingers in and, and cheat and I never rolled any dice. I just, just, ah, uh, oh, Metal Monster, definitely kills it for sure. <laughs> I don't know how, I, remember, I think they were quite hard if you actually tried to play them properly. And then one day I was, I mean, I'd gone to town growing up in Norfolk. I, I went into town and I saw a copy of, of White Dwarf and I picked it up. And it was the um, the second issue, like the first issue that had all the stuff about ultramarines in for Rogue Trader. And I was like, this is amazing. This is something I want to get into. Although I couldn't actually afford to build a very big army. I'd sort of randomly buy miniatures through my teenage years. Uh, didn't concentrate on my GCSEs because I was too busy learning about Beastmen chaos and stuff went to university um dropped like so many people do decided uh i like girls and beer more than I like models but um soon found my way back um worked for games workshop for a little bit um and, and really for a long time i was really just a 40k gamer that was my game it was only really recently 
um, as I've started to, I thought, I just was feeling a lack of satisfaction just playing 40k, and it must be sort of six, seven years ago, I just started branching out and trying different things, trying games like uh, Bolt Action. I've really sort of, I've left 40k behind now. Sorry, everyone, that's a popular game out there, but um, it just wasn't scratching the itch anymore. It didn't matter how many armies I bought and how many hundreds of pounds I sank into new armies. I just wasn't getting the same satisfaction um, as I had been. And um, I guess, so now I'm in a place where I've sort of um, expanded more into historicals. I hit 40 and that therefore I heard the clarion call to start playing um, historical games. And that's really where I am at the moment. I do like a bit of science fiction and a bit of fantasy. But um, yeah, at the moment, I've, I've got a big, a big thing for historical. That's yeah. where I'm at the moment. I also did exactly the same with Choose Your Own Adventure books. I don't think I ever rolled a dice. <laughs> it was also, of course I killed them. Of course I... The, the first one I played, I got like three monsters in. I was killed by a zombie and I was like, this is really, this is really dull. I just want to, I just want to carry on playing. So I just carried on. I said, I killed them. Let's carry yeah. on. My GCSEs was also sort of affected by Beastmen and Gores because it was... It was the, the period where you could have hordes of them. I know. I was like, these are so cool. I, I so should have. I mean, I mean, if, if my brother, my brother came home with the Dungeons and Dragons box set, and I was like a lonely, lonely, lonely little boy in Norfolk, and if he, he could, he could have brought home a, a book of physics. He could have done <laughs> something else entirely and made my life have been entirely different. I was like, ah, a fantasy world I can hide in. This is perfect. A gateway to a new world. Um, something else that we sort of have in common um, is sort of the practicalities of sort of gaming and sort of general hobbying, sort of living in London. Or sort of, I assume sort of it's similar to sort of an urban area, sort of anywhere in the world, really. It's sort of the fact that we can't play at home. Um, no. Definitely not on a, a six by four or even any of the more modern board games, which sort of, Need a kitchen. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and and watch different YouTube videos um, from people over in America, Canada, North America, and they've all got basements, and they're all set up like um, it's the war Churchill's war room down there, with uh, all kinds of uh, tables and areas for terrain to set up, and they keep they're like, how do you transport miniatures? I don't need to transport miniatures because they're just up on my shelves. Uh, it's not quite the same here in in London, is it, Tom? Uh, no, if you want to play a game, it has to be down the club. Yeah. Um, which means sort of a getting to the club with your army, which is a sort of a big sort of impact on what you're playing because sort of going on the tube in rush hour with sort of two or three cases of quite delicate figures is not a fun experience. I um, I sold my orcs. Um, I know all the orc players out there took a gasp when they heard that. Um, my orcs were K. Well, one day I had to store them at home, which is a lot of space. Then I would take them to work with me. Then I'd have to put them somewhere while I was at work. Then I'd get on a bus, a London bus, with four cases of orcs, get to the club, set up the game. And if anyone has got an orc army out there, you understand mobs are pretty big. I'd set the game up. Then I'd have to move the units around the board. Then we'd finish the game. And my opponent would pack his models up. I'd be there for another hour just packing mine away. And then I'd take those four cases home on the bus. And I love those orcs. And I love, I'm not sure I love painting them, but I got more painted. Hundreds and hundreds of orcs. Um, 
But that was a definite factor in why I just went, I can't play these anymore. It was simply the storage and just the time to the transportation and the time to use them. Like, yeah. I'm exactly the same. I built a pike and shot English Civil War army. Um, that's five really useful boxes. And it, it's such a pain to get to transport it all to a venue to play that I can't realistically see me ever playing with a whole army in one go unless I forego the expense of taking a cab to go and play a game, which you know, seems rather foolish to me. So playing one game a month, I don't know how much a cab would cost you from your place to the club, Tom. Well, I can see an argument if you were going like at a special occasion, getting a cab. If you're going every Wednesday down the club, that's a big expense. Yeah, I would to get a cab there and back for my army. You're probably looking at forty, fifty quid. Yeah, that's that's too much. You know, you could possibly look at it for a one-off event, thinking, well, it's the equivalent of a ticket and a hotel going to an event, but not as for for regular gaming. I mean, that's almost a, what a, a Games Workshop Rhino every every week. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's. <sighs> It's half of no, a quarter of what the entire army cost me, probably. Yeah, I think you could literally buy an army for the cost. Yeah, I mean, although as I'm getting older, I find the big thing is not the cost of the army, it's the getting actually finding the time to paint it. But I think that's a bigger conversation for another time. I think I think we'll chat about that later on when we talk about sort of what is the hobby as sort of we see it. Um, and we should probably have a chat about scale as well, because I, I just played a game against Ed, our friend Ed at the club. We played English Civil War, but we played in 10 mil rather than 28 mil. And I have to tell you the difference in packing a 10 mil army. I put the poster up, I put the picture up on um, on Facebook and Tom's seen it. It was just a one KR, half one, half a KR foam mini case worth of, of models. And I had a, had a game of English Civil War that would have been, well, how many, like four really useful boxes. Yeah, it's, um, I think, sort of large figure, large model count armies. I think anything with the hordes is just going to be smaller scale from these days. So going back to the Beastman conversation of earlier, um, sort of during lockdown, I, I built a Warmaster army, which has sort of the same number of figures probably as my old 5th edition fantasy, I think. Yeah. Um, probably the same number of individual figures, but it took me a week to paint, cost about... 40 or 50 quid and fits in half of no I think maybe one really useful box yeah um and I can it, it looks really good on the table I have it looks like loads of dudes um and it was a fraction of the cost t- took me a fraction of the time to paint it and takes up a fraction of the amount of space I'm, go- I'm gonna name drop here I was talking to Ronnie Renton few years ago when he came down the club and I said to him at the time I said I think there's going to be a big resurgence in skirmish games and smaller scale games I would have to see what the war games soldiers and strategy uh, survey says this year about that but I, I said to him I think um, we're going to see a big and he said you might be right about the skirmish one but the issue is look around you in the club and we looked around the club and everyone was playing 28 millimeter I said you're right there that's the big thing. The smaller scales, I think, is you need to, if you're going to get people to play it, um, I think you need to get two armies. Well, that's definitely the approach I've taken when I've done things in 10 and 6 mil, is, is get two forces, 
and play it themselves. But I, I think sort of talking about the club, sort of we're both members of the Hackney area tabletop enthusiasts, hate club. If you go to UK events, you will have seen us, um, probably. Heard us as well. You will definitely have heard us. And I think sort of playing at the club really does dictate, I think, a lot of what we play and sort of definitely how we play. And so on the skirmish game front, I would say almost every game that gets played is, is really skirmish or sort of large skirmish, apart from 40k. Yeah, I was about to say, all 40k. Um, yeah. Like Infinity, um, I mean, Bolt Action, we play Bolt Action, but that's not, that's like 30 to 40 men and 30 men in the tank, isn't it really? When people see things being played, they are more inclined to sort of play. Like when bolt action first started, I think we started playing bolt action four, three, four years ago, when Andy actually had the idea that we would uh, go to a Cambridge too far, arranged for sort of us to send a team of us to go. He then couldn't go himself. It was. It happened to have been the same day as the country to country music festival. My wife is a huge country music fan. And I would have more luck at missing Christmas than missing the country to country music festival. But I think sort of then four of us, I think, picked up bolt action. I'd yep. sort of not previously played it, but I'd sort of jumped in on that. And I think sort of over time, as more people have seen us playing it, um, heard us talking about it and realised they can get a game. I think we, we've now sort of maybe grown to maybe 10, 12 sort of semi-regular yep. bolt message, action players. Message we have a lockdown saying... I want to learn bolt action when we when when things open up again. I want you to teach me how to play bolt action, and so and it's a really good it's a really good game. I really enjoy it. I know it may not be the most historically accurate interpretation of World War Two, but um, it plays well. It's easy to learn. It's a fun game. So yeah. And also, I, I know now, sort of on the, the club Facebook page, there's all quite a bit of conversation about Warmaster and sort of what version of that are we going to play. Yeah, when it sort of kicks off, you know, people like myself who have got the rule book are sort of quite happy to play that, and sort of other people want to play the living rule book because it's you know pretty difficult to get hold of a paper book that's been out of print for fifteen years or whatever it is now. I got my copy off eBay, and I think I spent ten pounds on it, which is you know, I think is fair enough. It's, it, it, I think that if you want to get the original Games Workshop models. They can be a little bit on the pricey side, but there's so many companies that do, you know, ten mil models out there. You can you can do you can do something for sure. Oh, I just did a um, recently built a, a Pendragon dwarf army. I think two thousand points, and I think it was. I think I had changed from forty quid. Yeah, um, mine through. I did. I, I went a Calistra. Is that they're called? Um, and I bought mine. I I picked it up a salute. I'm getting back to the point I, I, I was trying to make. I think maybe I don't know if the fact that we live in London and transporting models is so hard, whether that influences the club towards skirmish games and smaller scales. So that's the point I was trying to make is that I think people are so, you know, strapped for time and the convenience. Um, it's quicker, quicker to paint, they're cheaper to buy, they're easier to move. The only problem is, and I was having this conversation with our other friend Monk, he said, Yeah, but. I can't convert them. I can't convert the models. For him, the joy is to get a 28 mil model, and you know it's, it's almost for make, making a piece of art for him. Uh, the game comes second. I think that's sort of like a really good 
segue into sort of the second part also of today's episode of sort of like what is the hobby really because if, if you're not familiar sort of with that phrase sort of like the hobby it can sort of be sort of quite confusing actually sort of well i know what a hobby is you know it's an activity <laughs> or interest that people do for pleasure or relaxation but sort of what is the hobby as i would understand it and sort of andy feel free to jump in if you sort of disagree it's sort of is used by sort of miniature war gamers to sort of refer to sort of the all-encompassing aspects of the hobby, which really are sort of buying and collecting models, building models, playing models, painting models, playing with models, sort of, but also sort of talking, reading, sort of consuming all the different sort of media about models, sort of the backgrounds for the world, and sort of all that sort of fluff and crunch, yeah. sort of both real world and fictional. The hobby surrounds, it penetrates and binds the gamers together. And also sort of not to um, forget the people who are also very much in sort of making terrain and scenery yeah. and that sort of thing. And it, it's, it's, it's weird. I, I, the game you play, it, it, it changes. Well, you, how do I make the work with a phase? It's like I, 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 I like history. I'm a big history buff anyway. But when I started playing bolt action, I started doing research. And you know what happened? I started learning the history of World War Two, which it wasn't my plan when I started playing bolt action to, you know, to know the difference between different um, German and Russian tanks. It wasn't my intention to learn about what happened in Yugoslav, and it wasn't my intention to learn about what happened in North Africa. I was just going to play a game with some, you know, commando comic style fun, um, not too serious. But as a consequence, it had a real world knock on effect where I, suddenly I was reading history books. That idea of sort of researching and reading um, is now really much is very much sort of what inspires me. And we'll sort of look at the model ranges that are available and decide, well, this needs loads of things. I've been recently reading about um, sort of the Siege of Vienna and the, the Winter's Hours. I think, well, that would be really cool. You need hundreds of them. That's obviously going to be something in small scale. What would work for that? And then, yeah, you don't want to be paying hundreds of twenty-eight mil um, wing to. Well, maybe you do. <laughs> maybe that's no, they, the, thing the, to do. But I, the, I, Nor the Northern Cavalry has burnt me out on large-scale twenty-eight mil cavalry armies. So many horses a man can paint with twenty-eight mil. <laughs> but it's it's also sort of thinking about that. You, you sort of start looking at models and sort of going back to the idea. Uh, the talk about monkey earlier on in the idea of sort of converting things and sort of collecting sort of the middle ground between sort of toys and sort of the gaming pieces versus scale models. And there is some sort of overlap if, you know, are you buying, if you buy a tank for bolt action, do you go for a sort of like the warlord ones, which are sturdy, hard plastic lumps of resin, or do you go for a, maybe a, a Tamiya kit, which is, you know, probably 148 scale, slightly more delicate but you can still easily play with or do you go for a dragon and a really high detailed super etched scale model which is much more fragile much more expensive looks a little bit better but isn't really meant for gaming one really pleasant thing that i discovered when i moved from bolt action i was always a, a games workshop kind of player was that the tanks all cost the same amount in money <laughs> no matter how powerful they are in the game it's just, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird place for me to be, <laughs> but um, so you can, you, it's not about your bank balance, it's about what you want to have in the, um, in the army. 
Yeah, I think definitely. And I think also from a sort of collecting point of view, when you're looking at things like tanks, it's definitely possible to decide I'm going to collect tanks and there is an end point to how many tanks you sort of need. Like I play a lot of uh, World War Two Germans and so I've got a lot of World War Two German tanks now. And so but once you've got an early Tiger one and a late Tiger one, you don't need any more Tiger ones. The same as once you've got a, you know, you've got a Panther, you don't need more Panthers unless you're sort of going down different camo schemes for different armies. Yeah, because some people play tank wars and they just want to play with tanks. And that's, you know, there's um, Water Tanker by um, Two Fat Lardies. So you can play games that are just about tanks. But even then, I don't know if you'd need like seven or eight 28 mil tanks, uh, Tiger ones, each, each to their own, I'd say. I might be wrong, but I think in one of the game, I think in several of the campaign books that Warlord have put out for bolt action, you definitely need three of mm-hmm. things. So you, you might need like a Hetzerzug or a, a Pantherzug. Yeah. Um, and I think I think I have got a Hetzerzug because lots of people seem to buy the Hetzer kit, don't like building it, and then give them to people as gifts. And I don't know who would do a silly thing like that. Who would give uh, away Hetzer? We sort of talked about Warlord, we talked about sort of GW, um, you and then sort of have loads of other different um, sort of manufacturers, you know, Perry, Rubicon, Great Escape, Mantic, Victrix, yeah. Empress, Bad Squiddo, sort of all of those. And so the other thing that they also come with, whereas there have been different complexities of models, also has vastly different price points, you know, some are plastic, some are metals, some are resin. Um, and so sort of quite often, depending on the sort of the price that you're going for and the volume that you're going for, will maybe dictate you more to sort of one manufacturer than the other. You know, Empress make gorgeous metal minis, which are fantastically sculpted. But, you know, for a a large skirmish game, you know, if you need 30, 40 of them, they are, while still quite pricey, affordable. You know, you may be looking at the the £100 mark, sort of that sort of thing some 1980s Iranian guys and I painted them up and they were really, really nice actually. I really enjoyed doing those. Just a little project for no particular purpose except I just wanted to, which is fair enough. And they were really, really nice models but um, if it was a larger, if it was a, a high body count army list then I would be, it would have been a bit more expensive. I might have to spread, spread out painting and, and buying them a little bit. Well, I think if, if you're going, especially for the ancients, which is might be rank and file and you know, you need 400 romans then you know maybe the the, the victrix plastics which is you know i think 25 quid for 60 sort of yeah. makes them much more affordable and if you are gaming on a budget those sorts of things i think are something that sort of does definitely come into sort of the buying and collecting models yeah it, it depends if you care as well you know um you know not everyone needs to be a, a crystal brush winning model and you know if like you said yourself earlier, you can play with bases of blue tack on if you really want to. They are, after all, just tokens. So it's, it's down to you. If, you. if you're happy to have, you know, some models that are not as finely detailed as other companies, you don't have to go and buy every single piece in resin and convert everyone and then get your airbrush out and spend seven hours on every model. You know, if you're happy to, because it is at the end just a, just a token. So I think that's sort of talking about sort of, you know, plastic metal resin, that sort of thing. I think it's also part of a maybe it's sort of a generational 
point in the hobby. I know in the, the big war gamers survey that's recently sort of come out, sort of saying, you know, the popularity of metal is dropping off and sort of plastic is sort of really starting to sort of take over, specifically among younger gamers. Yeah. And I, I sort of wonder if that is sort of a mixture both of, of, of price and the ability to sort of intermingle kits and sort of personalize things. So if you have an army and you've got four squads, those four squads of 10 men can have 40 different sculpts and positions yeah. rather than having, you know, four even of each dude. Head, even if we had to turn ahead, just the head change, you know? I mean, yeah. you're always turning heads, Tom, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, just a simple head swap or head change on a plastic model, it can completely change the look, you know, of a model. And and for me, I think there's one thing also, it's just simply the weight of carrying them. If you've got a KR case full of metal models, I used to have my metal Imperial Guard, I still do, they're in London storage at the moment, but my metal Imperial Guard, the difference in weight of picking up a box full of lead models, not lead, sorry, um, non-lead models, metal models, um, and you pick them up and you happen to carry that in your backpack all the way to the club, man, you feel it. But the same in plastics, could chuck that across the room and someone could catch it and they'd still be fine <laughs> it's just yeah it's crazy i like painting metal um i generally think personally i think a lot of the sculpts are slightly better slightly crisper um yeah and playing sort of more niche armies you could quite often get things in metal which you can't get mm-hmm. in plastic or quite often in plastic there's sort of either a lot of converting or sort of making do whereas you might be able to get the specific in metal I was just thinking, I wouldn't think of the Italian army as niche, but apparently you can't get it in plastic. tend to be cheaper, more poseable, uh, but they do lack a, a certain heft. They're easier to mend as well, although maybe not the gun barrels when they come off. I don't know. Some manufacturers are different to others. I think maybe sort of going back into scale as well. I think that the, histo- the heroic scale ones which have maybe sort of slightly bigger barrels, um, slightly less delicate things, I think stand up for gaming much better. And um, I I think sort of manufacturers themselves know this, as I've realised in some of the later Rubicon kits. For those people who sort of don't know, Rubicon make um, gaming models that sort of straddle the line between sort of the quality of a scale model kit and a gaming toy um they're really good detailed they're really i think they're brilliant kits and sometimes they can be a little bit sort of ridiculous in the detail in sort of all these things that you put in place and then you glue a hatch on top and can't see any of it (laughs) i'm thinking of a greyhound that i made a, a tiny fire extinguisher for that no one will ever see um but sort of recently built their um, quad flak. Um, and that, for example, comes with two sets of barrels. It comes with one set which are in the correct scale and then sort of a gamer version, which are simply slightly bigger. You can't tell the difference yeah. really unless you sort of put them side by side and you're sort of getting the micrometer on them to work out, well, this is 0.3 of a mil thicker. Yeah. But you can just tell from game, picking it up those thicker barrels aren't going to snap if you knock it over and it hits the floor. Um, I'm thinking of some pikemen that I've just changed. I, I hadn't even painted them. I had them in a box. I hadn't tra- even treated them that roughly. And when I got them out to to paint them, I was like, they've all just snapped. All the pikes had snapped off. 
So I replaced them with metal ones. I've seen some amazing things that have been 3D printed. And I know sort of, we have sort of friends and club mates who are, you know, churning out really brilliantly sort of created 3D prints. Oh, yeah. I personally have yet to sort of add anything that's printed to any of my collections. I've either not found anything that I like enough or what I think is sort of an upgrade than anything I've got. But saying that I have got some quite a few uh, Mad Bob bits, yeah, which, which I think are, are casts of 3D prints. Um, yeah. But I have to think he's gone to all the work of sort of getting rid of the print lines and sort of upping the quality in them. And I think they're brilliant. Um I don't know what your thoughts are on 3D printing. Well, we've got lots of 3D prints. I, mean, I think it's really, really good for scenery. You can do some really good stuff for scenery. Um, I think that's where it, its true purpose kind of lies. Um, I've got lots of vehicles. I found like I found I, I can get a few sort of odd niche vehicles that maybe aren't so readily available due to popularity, the bigger print runs, and to make the moulds or just wasn't economically viable but a 3d printer can churn out one they got the st was it stl file sti file what's it called stc template so they've got the stc template to print it out on their 3d printer to me i just want to have something that looks reasonably good on the table at a reasonable price um, i'm not too worried if it's got the wrong kind of the refinement and the door handles isn't it's from 1939 and not 1942 people are gonna you know whatever it might be is i'm not too bothered i find it just a cheap lightweight um, way to sort of get a few vehicles together um, so I'm very happy with 3D printed stuff I've, I've never had one with the wheels down that well I must be honest, that's the one thing that seems to happen but the walls, the, the wheels keep falling off my Puma as well so I can't complain too much uh, Do you think that sort of fits in maybe to the sort of, again those sort of brackets of like, is it a, a, a thing that you've painted that you've collected versus a gaming token, so it's a thing to game with yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right there, Tom. For me, I, I just want something that looks good, doesn't have to look great, and is the right size. It, like for me, it's like a big token. I've also sort of taken the jump up in sort of kit wise to sort of replace a lot of my German tanks with the 148 scale model kits. Oh, um, yeah. I started with the big cats, um, primarily from a, a price point of view. Because if you sort of want to buy a, a 156 Warlord Elephant, something like that, they're you know, 30 quid and it's mm. a useless tank. Yeah. Whereas you can get the Tamiya 148 one for like about a tenner. That's good. Section three. Genres of game. Yeah. Um, I think sort of in the sort of general chat we've been having, so sort of we've been talking about sort of various genre games. And sort of, I would say that they fall roughly into three. You have sci-fi fantasy and historical yeah. and they also broken down into sort of subgenres and i think sort of over sort of like the monolith over the whole hobby is 40k yeah and i think 40k is an order of magnitude bigger than every other game combined still doesn't make up you know a yeah. quarter of 40k and i, I uh, controversially i don't think that controversial i came to the hobby through 40k I feel I feel I'm at a place now where I am playing the games that I want to play, but I wouldn't have got here if it wasn't for 40k because I wouldn't have found players and I wouldn't have learned all the how to paint and I wouldn't have you know got into wargaming if it wasn't for 40k. But you're absolutely right; it's huge. Uh, exactly the same with me. You know, it was it was playing 40k 
that is how I met you, how I met, to be honest, quite literally, my entire friend circle post-university came out from playing 40k, really, because it's how I met the gaming club, it's how I made new friends as an adult in a new city. Um, yes, you know, yeah, same here. I mean, when I moved up to, to London, that's how, you, that's how you make friends, is, is um, going out and hanging out together, and that's, you know, it's hard in a big city when you get here, but it was good to have a a place to meet up and meet people. I would say probably then maybe the the second sort of largest grouping of gaming is possibly then historical. Um, now I have had the advantage of having heard a little bit about the the, the um, war gaming survey from War Game Soldier and Strategy. Actually, the next biggest one is fantasy. Oh, I wasn't expecting fantasy to be to be bigger than historicals, but apparently it is. That is a, a surprise. A surprise um, to me. I was totally expecting World War II to be the second biggest gaming genre after, um, I, mean, I might be remembering this wrong, of course, um, after um, after 40K, I thought it was going to be boom, 40K, then World War II historicals. But actually, it was, I think it was Fantasy was the biggest one. I was like, I was quite surprised. But I guess you got companies like Mantic, I start thinking about fantasies like Burrows and Badges, Frostgrave. I think Frostgrave. Um, it's probably the second biggest one after maybe 40k. I don't know. Uh, maybe Age of Sigma because you've got that. Oh no, they, it was it was non non Warhammer fantasy because they uh. different between because because Games Workshop's so big, like they do science fiction and then Games Workshop science fiction. Again, you might want to go and actually find a. I haven't got them in front of me, and I'm just trying to remember from having listened to a podcast like a week ago. See, we, we haven't done our research on this yet. Well, we're not, well, Tom, I don't think any of us, we're not going to do any research, are we? Because then we might, people, people are sick of facts, they just want opinions. Yeah, don't, don't want any experts. Don't want experts, just want people spouting opinions, because they are the same, aren't they? Facts and opinions. I'm using sarcasm for that there. What I think traditionally was the sort of what got sort of miniature wargaming sort of started really is the historical gaming. Yeah. And, um, as a historical gamer, it's quite difficult to work out how popular it is. For example, sort of like I've recently jumped into playing and building six millimeter stuff while in lockdown. And for sort of six millimeter fans, you will know sort of, of Bacchus. It's actually impossible to really buy Bacchus minis at the moment because they open their cart, they open their web store, and within a few hours, they have so many orders, they have to close the web store again then it for seems to several be months. Popular. I mean, I, I've jumped into 6 mil. I mean, I've got some Carthaginians that I need to really get on and get to work on. Um, but it's been, and I'm going to plug another podcast here, at God's Own Scale. Um, been listening and it's a very good it's a really good show and it just seems like six mil is immensely popular but it's sort of sliding under the radar a little bit what do you think tom i i think definitely so i think it's possibly i think maybe because it's a scale that most people aren't familiar with if you're coming from games workshop from sort of yesteryear you will be familiar with epic or warmaster which was in 10 mil so it isn't an alien concept to, I think, 
to gamers of a sort of you know if you're yeah. over 30 you've probably seen 10 mil stuff before yeah. six mil i think it's just an alien sort of concept to a lot of people so it's taking a little bit of sort of get bending their, their minds around to that but also i think what makes it slightly more difficult as well is there isn't an overriding game that is the six mil game yeah um because simply because there's so many periods of history that's it it's it's very much a case of pick the game you want to play and adapt it to six mil same yeah. as you were saying that last week you and ed played 10 mil pike and shot yeah we played pike and shot in 10 mil and it worked fantastically well actually um so i know the plan with your carthaginians is that we're going to play some hail caesar Indeed. in six mil um and i've got some uh world war one and zaxon turks that i'm sort of working up a homebrew bolt action to play i think in probably six mil with them another benefit of six mil i think is the fact that so there are models available which aren't readily available for other periods uh, or, or in other scales yeah. that you can buy and you can run. Like, I, I, for some reason, really fancy doing a chariot army of some point because I think it would look really cool on the table. Oh, yeah. But, like, I would need to sort of sell a kidney to afford a 28 mil chariot army and, you know, have a storage unit to keep it in. Um, you know, you're looking 15 quid a chariot. Six mil, you can have that similar sort of effect on the table for the price of a few rounds of drinks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a big, there's a price point different of getting, and I always think that's dangerous because you, you could just buy a whole army in one go. It's 30 pounds, just buy an army. There you go. And I guess if you've got a pile of, a pile of shame or a pile of opportunity, depends how you look at it, um, at least a six mil, it only takes up what? cigarette packets of space in your or block of cheese for the kids who don't smoke worth of size in your in your cupboard doesn't it well i say it's, it's like as talking about those um the anzac and turk army sort of in, in my sort of pile of opportunity i'm stealing that phrase you know they're in a tub that's the size of like a baked bean can and that's two armies awaiting paint but also historical isn't just small scale stuff I think probably maybe like the most impressive are the like thousands of figured Napoleonic armies in sort of 172. But uh, so I've sort of been talking about recently with some of, sort of my hobby friends is the idea that those kind of armies are almost lifelong projects or yeah. or, or, or definitely multi-year projects. So oh, this is my Waterloo army that I've been painting since 1984. And I've got like three center companies left to go and then it's done. Um, yeah, because I, I I try and get through my armies pretty quickly. I'm like, OK, I'm going to do an army for this. And then I try to get it done. I try and keep it all in like one case worth of space. And I might buy an odd tank or something every now and then. But you know, basically, I try and get that project done really as quickly as possible so I can get on to the next one rather than thinking it as, OK, this is something that I'm going to be doing for, you know, the next 20 years. Yeah, I'm very similar in that. I, I'm, I generally build and paint armies to attend events, both sort of narrative and competitive ones, or, or even if it's just something down the club. And it's generally quite often I'm painting to my next deadline. So I, I might have a month, I might have three months, but there's always sort of like a point where I need to have the thing finished and then 
unfortunately, I think maybe for sort of like my bank balance and the amount of stuff in my house, it's generally once I reach that point, go to the event, it's then on to the next thing. And I, I don't very often go back and sort of get the old things out. Well, good, good news is, Tom, you don't have to do it that way. You can just buy you can just buy armies without having to go to events. Trust me, you can just buy loads of models all the time. It's the whole system there is it's, 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 it's flawed. We've, we've mentioned sort of painting in passing, um, sort of how we sort of go about, you know, sort of relatively speedy trying to move on, not going for that sort of golden demons or crystal brush sort of style of thing. Um, and I think sort of painting is a, a, across the hobby, I think it's sort of like across our friend circle. And I know we have people who are professional commission painters. We have golden demon winning friends. We also have plenty of people who hate painting and, you know, are loath to pick up a brush and people who palm it off onto somebody else to do their painting for them. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah there, there is no right or wrong way to do it. I, I think, you know, I personally have the opinion a badly painted model is better than an unpainted model. Yeah. And I think it is, I am not a good painter. I can paint decent tabletop minis that look fine on the tabletop. Yeah. Like I'm severely dyslexic, so I have crap hand-eye coordination. So um, I can't paint eyes. I can't do fine detail. I don't do edge highlights or that sort of thing because I can't do them. You know, I don't. I don't do eyes either, Tom. Um, life's too short for eyes. I don't. And you'll paint a model and it'd be looking really good, and you try and do the eyes and just completely ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> They've got cross-eyed. I'm like, no, just a bit of flesh tone into uh, over a, a, a wash yeah into the shadow where the eyes are is good enough for me i i think it's it's personally for me it's about finding a system that works for me i'm you know prime in the base color block out the primary colors give yeah. it a wash maybe give it a highlight if what i'm doing quite often it's just i don't actually do the secondary highlights depending on what i'm doing i might pick out bits that shouldn't have been washed give them a basin of varnish i think the first 15 years of my hobby life i was trying to learn techniques and get better and doing layering and washes and drive and learning all these techniques and then the last 15 years of my painting hobby life have been finding ways to get models done quicker that look good finding a way that does makes the models that you're happy with in as quick a time as possible because i, I paint to relax i would hate to get into the and i have in the past painted models where it wasn't fun because i was really anxious and stressed about doing a good paint job on the model and i thought this is pretty ridiculous I, i've spent money and time on something that's stressing me out yeah. what is the point of this and then you finish them and you're like ah they look so good i'm glad i did it that's you know that's the hobby isn't it that's it and i i find now painting a squad of 10 dudes in an afternoon far more pleasurable than painting half a leg in like three hours and then oh, yeah yeah absolutely i mean and you're painting them who are you painting them for for you you know as long as you make an effort i've, I've said i've never been to a game i've never heard of anyone getting turning up to a table and going i'm sorry there's only two two highlights on this model you know, I'm not yeah. going to pay you. And I think if, if if you're new to the hobby, I think there is, there is, I think people are quite often anxious about sort of turning up with unpainted models. I think, oh, what are people sort of going to do? And like, I've never had a problem ever playing against somebody who's either new to the game and they've got unpainted models 
yeah. or even if they've been in the hobby years and it's a new army or whatever yeah. i think sort of where i can see um sort of people taking a little bit of umbrage is if somebody keeps bringing out the same box of unpainted models year yeah. after year oh, but yeah but but then saying that you know you don't know what people have got going off if I was playing the same guy every week and he kept bringing out unpainted models, eventually I'd be like, just give me those models. I'm going to paint them for you. I would do exactly the same. Clearly you're never going to paint them. I will do them. Or if, if it went on long enough, I would just probably end up giving him the army I'd been playing in with and build something else to yeah. play against those and go, there you go. Um, saying that, the last few years, I've tried really much to get into the mindset of not playing, playing with unpainted models. Yeah. Simply because it gives me the motivation to get things finished and yeah. so rather than have several things knocking about thinking, right i need these done for wednesday night when i play someone i can't i can't imagine playing with unpainted models now because it's been i've got so many models available that i'd actually go oh i haven't got that done i wanted that done i will just take this tank instead of that i think i think i have painted i did try i think unpainted models last year when i was trying to learn to play war master ancients and yeah. for a again for an event and yep. wasn't sure um what army i was going to take so i was sort of playing with i had sort of the core of the army but like auxiliary units were just bases with things written on while i was trying to work out yeah what to take i mean that's fine if it's a, if it's a learning game i think you know yeah i think that sort of leads into sort of like one of the other sort of sections of sort of playing with models really sort of like the style of game mm -hmm. where you sort of, you have the sort of the social gaming, which I think is mostly what we do down the club, which is sort of, I think in America, it's the more like the, the beer and pretzels yeah. kind of gaming. You know, down the club, there's beer and crisps. Um, we, we played the game of um, Pike and Shot Me and Ed. And as it evolved, we set up our armies, put the pike in the middle, some cannons, and then we put the, ca uh, the cavalry on the flanks and the first thing that happened was they ran at each other they had a big battle his ran away and mine followed and i was like is this the first battle of newbury i can't remember which battle and we're like there's so many battles where that happens and we weren't planning to have we weren't saying oh let's do a historical reenactment but by playing the game we saw it evolve in the same way as those battles in the day evolved if that makes sense so the game itself was producing, kind of replicating what would have happened in a battle. And so it sort of fitted with what had happened historically. And it was just interesting to me that, you know, I was just making choices on the day and they were matching the choices that were made by those generals at that time ago. You know, if, if you're sort of having, making, playing a game to tell that story where you want, oh, well, one player is going to win but it's the narrative is how they do that. So, you know, it's can sort of the losing player still in effect get a win by achieving, you know, can the Germans keep the allies off for a certain number of turns? Yeah. They lose in the end, but they sort of win in the end. It, it's something I think that with practice. I mean, that's the victory. There's what choosing the victory conditions, you know, okay, we are going to lose, but can you last five turns? I was talking to, to, to Neil, who was one of our players down there, I was playing him at Kill Team, and uh, I played Ed at like the Pike and Shot, and I just said to him at the time, it is very different, because I'm, I was trying to stringently stick to the rules when we were playing Kill Team. These are the rules, doing this and that, and I think, but when me and Ed were playing the Pike and Shot, 
it was like we were discussing together a story and how we felt it should go rather than what is the letter of the law of the rule book it was a very different a more a gentlemanly kind of i don't know if it was the scale or the setting or what in particular made that change mental like we were we were playing a game together but we were definitely together deciding oh would we think that would happen there do you think what do you think would happen would they go would they make all the way to the wall i think on this occasion they would i think i think yes i think the officer that general wouldn't get in the way of the whole unit and i think it'd be fair enough to move them through him and up to the there's these kind of conversations where i wasn't getting that with the kill team the 40k um skirmish game but it was much more this is the letter of the law, this is what we're going to do. And I don't know if it's just a mindset of myself or the rules or what it was that was causing that change. I would say it's it's the rules and the, the way the game plays. Because I, I know so when I've played Pike and Shot, I think because there is so much, there's such a large element of chance. I know, I think we've played a game where I think we both had like large cavalry blocks that just didn't pass a te- an order test. For ages, so they just sat there, stood there looking at each other for several turns mm-hmm. without doing anything. I think when you've got that degree of sort of chance and friction in there, it inherently breaks it down from being a, a competitive, a sort of like a hard competitive game because you just you can't rely on somebody doing something most of the time. There's always too big of a chance. So I don't think you can take it super seriously. Whereas think something like Kill Team. You know, you know, this model is going to shoot at that model on a four up. He's going to hit it. It's yeah. not like, well, he might do it. He might not. We'll we'll see what happens. Is it what well, they call it? Granularity. I'm never exactly sure what that means, but I think it means you get you're getting right down to this gun against that guy. Does it hit? Rather than what does the unit do? You know, yeah. like, what, does, what does a group of a thousand men do? And I, I think there are there are definitely some games which run more to the one camp of being, you know, this is very sort of linear. These are the rules. It's very much this is what happened. You know what's happening at all times. And I think there are there are rules that are sort of very much more sort of free and loose, and you have that more of a, a conversation about them. I think sort of keeping it just within in Warlord. I think bolt action is very much a game where you always know what you're needing to roll to hit. The rules are very straightforward. Mm. You know, right? I'm hitting on a six i'm hitting on a you know i need a six followed by a six in that game it's called a seven that sort of thing all oh, right i'm going to wound you on a four you know what's going to happen whereas i think pike and shot is a little bit more free and loose a little bit more conversational and yeah. the original version of hail caesar is even more so because that doesn't even have points you yeah. just take what you want and you go right how many ancient britons does it take do you think to Hold up a legion when they're trying to advance yeah, Anglesey. They went. We've had a discussion before. I appreciate what they were trying to do there, but I don't like that. <laughs> I understand it can be hard to point things as well as like, okay, in the world of like rock, rock, paper, scissors, how much is, is a scissors worth uh, against an army of paper? How much they're worth against an army of rocks? Yeah, I know there's a difficulty there, but for if we just want to do a pickup game and you want to kind of have them balanced, it would be nice if things had a point. I really like points, especially for a pickup game, because you know, right, I'm taking X amount of points, my opponent's taking X amount of points. If it's a balanced ish game, we should have a, a decent game, no matter what we do and how we play. It, it should be fun. 
Whereas if I turn up with 50 veteran centurions and somebody's got 50 Gordy. Gallic warband, yeah. it's not going to be much of a game. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm the kind of person who's so polite, I will deliberately give myself less points. Like, uh, I think I'll give myself a, I'll take a few away just to make sure it's balanced. I've probably overestimated how much I should have on. And I'm sure there are people out there who would probably give themselves extra stuff just to make sure they were definitely ahead as well. So I like it, points anyway. The, the narrative gaming and, and the points is where it can link into sort of campaign play as well, which I think it's, it's something that. Our club does really well in some games. I know they have a sort of, they've been having a massive Necromunda campaign that has been going yeah. multiple years. I think the Infinity players play a sort of quite regular seasons. Um, you may not think of it as such, but Blood Bowl as well. That's a campaign, that's narrative. Um, the team's developing yep. and getting better throughout the season. We have a Blood Bowl tournament. Yep, that goes every year. And I think sort of, uh, some of the historical players, I, I know. Um, so a couple of the people have, have gone through the Bolt Action books and played some of those. And so there, so on the points, you might have, you know, one person's playing 500, the other person might be playing 3,000, but they've got sort of a scenario based up which makes it an even game for them both. And that is sort of the, the style of gaming down the club. Then sort of the other style of gaming that sort of, as a gamer I'm involved with is events that we've sort of talked about quite a lot. Now, they are generally sort of one-day events where you rock up, you play three, maybe four games, a fixed amount of points in a fixed amount of time against random opponents. Yeah. Um, I really like them, number one, because it means it's an excuse to sort of go away with a group of my friends. It might be sort of a day trip, might be overnight in a hotel, um, sort of like, you know, it's boys' weekend, really, for want of a better word, where you're playing toy soldiers, drinking beer and getting a lot of games in. Definitely buy um, some cider that's way stronger than you think it is. <laughs> it's always fun. Or uh... <laughs> Thinking of no particular time. In... Yeah, that's rather naughty. Um, <laughs> and so those events themselves are sort of can be split into sort of quite casual ones where you're chatting with your opponents. People might have taken armies that they've taken something that is less optimal because it fits in with the historical theme that they're going for. Or you could be ones where people have sort of ditched history and they've got sort of, you know, a, a late war world war two army that's got a early war tanking simply because it's more points effective. But I think in general, those kind of events are doing a better job of signposting what they are, what sort of players they attract. Yeah. So you sort of, you know what you're getting in for. I really feel that tournaments are a really, um, unfortunately, a really good place where a good, in the bad sense of the word, a really good place for, um, for, for sort of a clash of cultures to occur between the historical gamer who's trying to play historically and the gamer that's trying to win. Um, so it's really important to get a feel for what people expect. Because if you, if, there's nothing wrong if, if both players are like, I'm going to bring the most kick-your-teeth-in list that I can. That's fine. But the issue is when you've got one person who's like, I'm going to bring like an exact, uh, as close to exact list of what was there at Narvik on this particular day. Um, so I'm not going to take the most optimal list, but I will take a historically accurate list. Uh, and the other person is going, right, great. I'm going to bring in, uh, I'm going to have six tiger tanks 
know, which were never fielded together um, in, you know, early, early war, you know, invasion of France sort of thing. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, that mindset, I think, from talking with sort of gaming buddies carries across all sort of types of game and all sort of genres of game. I'm sure there are 40K tournaments which are, you know, kick your teeth in and there are more fluffy 40K tournaments, the same as Infinity and Blood Bowl and sort of all gaming, really. Yeah. As well as sort of tournament events, you have narrative events which sort of might not even have an overall winner. Uh, and it's more you play for the Allies, you play for the Axis, again, in a World War Two sort yeah. of genre. Do the Allies or Axis win round one? Dictates the um, sort of the mission of round two and those sort of things and how they can also play in and sort of how you can be playing for a, sort of like a wider team. And quite often sort of you've got no idea who's on your team until you turn up on the day. And again, those can be really fun because um, I particularly like those because you're probably playing sort of more themed armies that you're not going to see as often. You're going to have more chat sort of around them. You're probably going to learn something fun. Um, yeah. And they're just going to be more more relaxed. You're not going to have to be sort of on your A game. And if you've been out the night before on really strong cider, you don't have to sort of worry about it at eight o'clock in the morning <laughs> when you're trying to roll dice. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. I, I didn't do too badly on the second day, in all fairness. Initially, I was all about kicking teeth and taking names i thought it was so important to be you know i need to be respected as this great gamer who, who, who wins everything and as i've maybe mellowed in my old age i just want to have fun and roll dice and i'm not so concerned if i win i'm happy that's what we're there for but you know it's not it's it's not worth now it's it, it's personal goals isn't it i i know i like winning and i think I, I don't think there's many people who say oh, i hate winning um but i I get more enjoyment by people sort of looking at my army and going, what's that? And I sort of explain and they go, oh, that's cool. I'm yep. much more interested in that. You know, I sort of, I took uh, sort of some Abyssinians from sort of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia to yeah. a, a Seagulls landed last year. Um, it wasn't a, a brilliant army, but I had a lot of fun building it, I had a lot of fun playing it. And it was cool to chat to people about that army. The same as uh, Lincoln it's Cambridge. You're such, a You're such a hipster, Tom, with your uh, I, I am a, a hipster with my obscure armies. <laughs> I think it, it is my reputation down the club for playing the obscure things. But I, I, I was beaten at a, a Cambridge too far. I think the last one with the uh, the Brazilian foreign intervention force, which was quite cool. Um, yeah. It's just nice to see different things, you know, and, and have sort of play an opponent that's taken the time to go, okay, this is this particular conflict you can see they had this particular tank and they've taken it not because it's most optimal but because it was what was actually there it's just it's just more interesting to me i think than yeah we're just like you don't get that with 40k but with, with certainly historicals it's just nice to actually have what would have actually been there on the day i think it's both true but i would disagree as well actually because i think you do have some of the 40k uh sort of players because of the fluff is now you know what 40 years old 30 yeah. years old. Yeah. So, that. so I, I, and I think you will have people say, oh, this force is based on what was in, you know, White Dwarf 23. Oh, um, yeah. So, yes, true. Yeah. Because uh, you usually get the army lists in White Dwarf battle reports. I think probably maybe as uh, quite a few people did. As soon as I sort of 
became a proper adult and started earning money. I sort of, I, I bought the Rogue Trader 40k army that I couldn't afford as a kid. And you know, I, I bought all the toys that I wanted, which I couldn't have then because I couldn't afford them. I then bought them all. And I know there is sort of like a, a maybe a growing community at the club of people who want to go back and play original Rogue Trader sort of things, maybe with all the toys that they didn't have back in the day, which they, they have now got. And I think with the sort of the Horus Heresy stuff, it's made it, you know, you don't need to buy the original 1987 land speed as you can get the new Forge World resin ones, if that's sort of yeah. what you want for the look. But I think that sort of really sort of sums up what I would sort of think of really as gaming. The only other thing that I can sort of point that are on sort of like my checklist that I've sort of maybe not talked about is the sort of the inspiration for projects, even though I think we have maybe sort of picked up on that, you know, where you, you sort of read something, you see something. Um, you know, a lot of people might, you know, you watch a movie and you think, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm sure there are an awful lot of sort of late 90s World War II armies that sort of came out inspired by sort of Band of Brothers or um, Saving Private Ryan. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think even the, the uh, bolt action starter set, I think, is called Band of Brothers. So I think, you know, you can sort of take that sort of inspiration sort of very much on its sleeve and it's very much sort of accepted. I don't think if you said, oh, here's my, you know, um, here's my come and see inspired Soviet army or my German army, people are going to sort of go, oh, what on earth is that? They're going to think, oh, that's really cool. Um, I mean, for me, it comes from all different kinds of places I'll be reading. Um, some of just I've seen some models and I'm like that's just cool. I mean, I am a, a hobby butterfly. I'm I'm a early adopter for rule sets, and I will just I see something again and I think oh that's amazing, and I want to pick up stuff because I see the models, or I'm really inspired by uh, the setting for the rule. Might you know watch a movie. Uh, where does inspiration come from? Who Anywhere. Knows? You know, literally anywhere. Um, you might flick through the rules and go, "Oh, I really like the sound of that gun." I'm going to choose. I'm going to give everyone flamethrowers. I possibly can just to try out. You know, it might be rubbish. It might be great. Let's see. Yeah. And where did inspiration come from? You know, everywhere. I think is the answer, isn't it? Uh, I think. I, I think so. I think it's also. I think it's, that will probably break out into an episode on its own, further down the line. And it could uh, be. It can be things you see, and it also you can be inspired by limitation as well. It's like, what have I got available? How can I make this w that I have work? You know, um, some army lists maybe don't let you take transport. So how am I going to get quickly to this place? You know, I who knows? Who knows? And there's a lot, the final thing, which I think maybe sort of briefly touch on today, but I know we will definitely sort of come back on later on, uh, further down the line. Sort of like the benefits of gaming, and I, I know um, personally. Sort of gaming and hobbying, I find sort of you know really the cornerstone of sort of like my mental health sort of self care yeah. regime. Really, I find sort of painting and building models. I find very relaxing. Um, so sort of, it's, it's the way to sort of de stress after a week. And so sort of, an awful lot of my socialising it's sort of framed around gaming, even though there's quite often not very many dice. Yeah, sort sort of played to the point that when I meet up. So with yourself and a sort of a, a wider group of friends, we will quite often play the game of, as we call it, the game of beer, which is really yeah. we're just meeting up and chatting about our week. Sometimes, um, I'll, sometimes I roll dice and drink beer, and sometimes I just drink beer. <laughs> yeah, 
or, or you know other beverages are available available soft drinks yeah that's true um, so i i think so that is really how sort of the importance of gaming for me really quite often actually playing the game itself is almost incidental i would imagine probably for every 100 hours i put into like the hobby i maybe get an hour two hours out of actual gaming i know otherwise there are other people who you know it will be the reserve the you know the reverse you know they may have spent a couple of weeks several years ago painting an army or getting a force together and now week in week out they play with that force and that's what they do again there is no rhyme or reason for what works for different people i, I actually hate to think how many models i have in my boxes that are painted that i have never played with exactly the same and i i think i, I know i've got i've got several armies that i have played five games with i've gone yeah. to an event played five games with that might have been five years ago that i haven't touched since yeah but i uh, enjoyed the process of researching getting the model painting it uh, playing with it almost at the end of that is maybe inconsequential it would be nice to use them but i've i've probably got my money's worth just from the taking the time to paint the model definitely definitely for me uh, i would agree that you know almost playing with them is an incidental cherry on the top it's you know it's the wrapping but you've really you've done the whole thing beforehand i, I know during lockdown i've completed several projects that are finished you know i've put a photograph up on the facebook group well oh you know, so these, many things i've done that i've finished in lockdown so, these yeah. these are done and they're away and i haven't got to play with them and it probably i probably won't play with them until the right occasion comes up oh i'll get these out and play with them but they've done their job for me for sort of like that's what i get out of my gaming um sort of yeah. thing and, and sort of earlier on again we were talking about sort of how it was sort of like meeting yourself and like meeting the rest of the club mates was all became my friend circle through gaming mm -hmm. and we quite have support circle as well i mean i you know with people not everyone is always having the best time and you know it's nice to have friends you can come and chat with and you can play games with i mean it's uh when you you get to spend time together and there was a fixed uh, set of rules when you, you know, when you play a game together but while you're doing that you can still talk to the person you know and still engage with them and, and, and chat and you know you do want people to be you know doing well oh d definitely and I, I, th I think not you know even when we're not in lockdown and we have normal times you know everybody has different stresses and yeah. you know, pulls on their times and mental health and everything and quite often just that ability to go down and you know not have to talk about you know the deeper meanings but just roll some dice and just be around people can be invaluable and i i know every week not well every month we get new people who have you know recently moved to london coming down yeah. the club so for the first time you know don't really know anyone and having that sort of that first point of sort of commonality between a bunch of people we were all gamers is i think such a sort of foot in the door to try to get to know people rather than just complete randoms yeah it's, the one thing I would say is, is that for all the positives that, you know, when the fun stops, um, you know, you can, you know, purchase too many things too quickly. 
Um, and you know, sometimes I look at the stuff, I've, and I haven't got that much these days. But you know, in the past, you know, I have looked at all the models I've got to paint, and it's depressed me to think oh, I've got all these models, and I felt bad about having spent all that money and then just having them sitting there. But um, I think that's yeah. definitely, uh, definitely, I think sort of like the overconsumption in in the hobby. You know, I think you know the phrase or like the piles of shame. That people yeah. have all, all the lead pile and yeah. idea that you know if, if you everybody maybe buys you know if you paint 50 models a year you'll buy 60 if you paint a thousand models a year you'll buy 1500 idea that everybody buys more than what they paint and it's sort of over time yeah. builds up and i think i think it's sort of just get to to sort of most people i think and again there are you know people can go expecting a fluffy game and get the teeth kicked in and be really upset about that and yeah you know we're not going to pretend that you know every game is brilliant you know all people there are you know good ones and bad ones in, in some every... people just always roll ones god bless them yeah especially if they're called rick yeah um, oh, i wasn't going to mention rick by name that's exactly what i was thinking of i'm really pleased that actually on our face our club the club we go to on our facebook page we don't get these pictures where people have spent a thousand pounds or more on a whole load of boxes of stuff and they're taking pictures like I only went in for a pot of paint they've got all the stuff i bought and it's like yeah but that's just gonna you have to paint that i'd rather see you buy one box of stuff paint it up and post those painted models and then buy another one then have you looking at those unopened unassembled models you know or you know plastic gray models just waiting to be painted yeah especially if the, the the models that you've seen a thousand times it's like great i didn't need to see the 15 boxes of troops that yeah. you've bought which i've already got i've got one side here i i don't have a problem if people go oh, this is like some really expensive weird model that you've never seen you know so, uh, some of the more like you know exotic model kits you know here's the yeah. you know the one 300 scale Battleship Yamoto or something, you know, yeah. six foot long. Yeah, show that ahead. You know, let me see that. But um, and then no. post when you finish it, like six months later, so I can see it finished. You know, I just <laughs> it's just the gross. It's almost like you know, um, gross. I'm about, like spending that much money in one go. It's just I find it. It's just distasteful. It might just depresses me. Like I don't want to see people doing that. I used to call it receipt hammer. Because it's, it's just people showing how much that they've spent and sort of yeah. getting kudos from it. But as, I'm really glad that our, our, our club, um, you know, doesn't have any of that. We don't play in an environment and we're not an online environment. I don't think that sort of reciprocates that sort of stuff. You know, somebody posts, you know, the first model that they've painted and, you know, it's not might not be brilliant, but they will get, you know, the due encouragement that's worth. We've got yeah. I really like what you've done with that bit or this bit rather than going, oh, that's crap. Thank you very much for listening to this sort of episode zero of the podcast. Yes, yeah, so this might be the one that no one ever hears, but that's, that's traditional. Episode zero is just um, terrible, but hopefully it wasn't too bad. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and, you know, it's just me and Tom rambling, really. So thanks, everyone. Well, thank All you. Goodbye. <laughs>